This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 1. I had the privilege this week of going to hear Andrew Peterson and his merry band of musicians perform a, um, in a stunning Methodist chapel. He's been touring the country for the past 23 Christmas seasons now, playing through one of my favorite albums entitled Behold the Lamb of God. He used to describe it as the true tall tale of the coming of Christ. I like that. Once the audience was seated neatly in place and guitars were tuned up and the lights grew dark, Andrew greeted us with the opening lyrics. Gather round, ye children, come. Listen to the old, old story of the power of death undone by an infant born of glory, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And from there, he sang through the pages of the Old Testament and into the New, with each song playing its part in telling the story of the Savior who came to bring us God's salvation once and for all. That night, I needed to hear those songs. I needed to be reminded once again of the good news of great joy. And as I sat there, I wondered about the people I was sitting among. My guess is that on each pew was a person, at least one, who was in desperate need to hear also the good news of great joy that night. Surely there were some walking through hidden suffering or others brokenhearted by some situation. And my guess is even this morning there is likely a person or more on each row that needs the very same thing, to hear once again the good news of great joy, of what Christ has come to accomplish for his people. And so my aim for the sermon this morning is very simple. I want to say to you, the church family that I love so much, gather round, beloved, come. Listen to the old, old story Listen to another much older song of the power of sin and shame and death undone by an infant born of glory, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Many of the carols of the Christmas season contain profound truths of who Jesus is. Hark the herald angels sing, written by the great Charles Wesley, speaks of Jesus being both deity and and humanity, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Old Dr. Watts' beloved song, Joy to the World, which we just sang a moment ago, draws from the language of Psalm 98, saying of Jesus, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus is the king of the earth. So let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Of course, there's no other child whose birth would be the occasion for 
all of the heavens and all of creation to join in song, except for one. Even the simplicity of silent night rings out the truth, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. If we pay attention, the carols of the season have much to sing about this baby born away in a manger. However, like we did the first week of Advent, this morning we will tune our hearts to a much older carol from the pages of Scripture that rings with truth of who Jesus is. Watts and Wesley, by their powers combined, cannot reach the heights of the great Colossian hymn. The Christ hymn recording in Colossians 1, 15-20, sings some of the loftiest statements in all of Scripture regarding the person of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes to a local church who needs to be reminded of the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of his work. And so he speaks to them in a memorable way that the people of God might always remember the glorious truths of who Jesus is. And so I simply pray as we look at this passage, we will once again look at our Savior with wide-eyed wonder and that we might be a church that always remembers the truth of who Jesus is. We learn primarily in this hymn that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's how it begins. And we'll learn here first that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And second, he is the author of our salvation. So would you stand with me as we read together this beautiful passage of God's holy and inerrant word. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. First, let's marvel together that Christ is the Lord of all creation. Verses 15 through 17. The hymn bursts out of the gate by describing the identity of Christ. There are two specific titles that help us understand this one whom the angels pronounce his birth, each pointing to his divine nature. The first phrase says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now the invisibility of God is something that is recorded in both the Old and the New Testaments. You can see Exodus chapter 33 verse 20 in the Old and 1 Timothy 1.17 in the New. But I love how John chapter 1 verse 18 summarizes 
that even though no one has seen God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John writes the same thing that Paul sings of here. In Christ, we have beheld the glory of the invisible God, now made visible. So the Greek word for this image is icon, which means a picture or a representation. Paul is saying that Jesus is the physical representation of God himself. The idea stretches even further because Jesus does not just reveal God externally through his miracles and teachings and even through the resurrection, but also internally. He embodies the personal character of God. The way the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 1 verse 3 is he is the exact imprint of his nature who represented God perfectly in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. He's the image of the invisible God. The next phrase is that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. At first glance, that phrase firstborn has led some to wrongly believe that Paul is saying that Christ, at some point in the distant past, must have been created. But this is not what the scripture says. The phrase firstborn can describe the firstborn child of a family. I'm sure there were some firstborn children standing on these stairs just a moment ago. But it's often used as a term that means first in rank or order, is ruling over. Um, Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, uses it this way to point to King David and to Christ. It says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This verse addresses God's covenant with King David who we know was not a firstborn, but actually the youngest of his brothers. So the title, Firstborn of Creation, is a way of saying that Jesus is Lord of all, that he's ruler of all creation. So both of these remarkable titles, image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation, are pointing to the fact that Christ is supreme overall creation and the only one worthy of that title is who God himself so what do we conclude Jesus is God when it comes to the identity of Jesus it is imperative that we understand what scripture teaches about him from the time that this letter to the church at Colossae is being written to our day here and now There has not been a period when the identity of Christ has not been warred against and disbelieved. In the fourth century, there was a man named Arius who had concluded that Jesus could not have been God and must have been created by the Father. As Arius started spreading these notions, the first council of churches gathered in the year 325 to decide together on this theological issue. It was called the Council of Nicaea. And they rejected what Arius was saying and affirmed the teaching of Scripture 
in what we now know as the Council of Nicaea. They confessed their belief in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. That's what they said. Where do they get every one of those tenets of this confession, of this creed? From the word of God. So why would this confession from ages ago matter today? Well, it matters because the Christian faith is centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? The Christian faith is centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research began conducting a state of theology. We've looked at that a couple of times over the last four years. It's a survey where they interview people to learn what they believe about the basic teachings of Christianity. Uh, the most recent report was not encouraging, to say the least. In it, they found that as much as 73% of professing evangelicals left room for the possibility that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. It broke my heart hearing that. These are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who say we profess faith in him, we receive him as a good teacher, but not as God, which is to believe a Jesus of our own making, not the one presented in the Bible. There's so much confusion on the person and work of Christ, even among professing believers. I did a little test with Canon last night, asking him if he believed what he believed about Jesus in this statement. And he goes, Jesus is God. I said, good, you need to start telling more people. <laughs> this is probably a well-meaning group of people, but here they are denying his deity. And this is absolutely contrary to Scripture, which affirms from beginning to end that Jesus is indeed God. And so we have a lot of work to do so that people would know and believe and worship not a Jesus of our own cultural making, but one revealed through the pages of Scripture. And so, just in case anyone phones you asking you a series of questions from Ligonier or Lifeway, uh, or sends you an email, I want the people of the Trails Church and anyone within shot of my, of my voice to get this right. So, just to make sure, I want you to repeat after me. Here's the phrase I want you to say. Jesus has always been, completely is, and forevermore will be God. That's the phrase. So would you say that with me? Jesus has always been, now it's your turn. Jesus has been. Completely, is, completely is, and forevermore will be God. And, 
please don't get that wrong if someone calls you. For the sake of, of being an orthodox Christian, we cannot miss this. This is the center of our faith, knowing who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let's turn our attention now to the work of creation in verse 16. It takes the truths regarding who Christ is as the divine image and ruler over all things and proves it by showing that he is the uncreated God who is the very one who has created all things. John 1.1 states it like this, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So when it comes to the origin and the scope of creation, Scripture leaves no doubt that Christ was the agent of all creation. And out of nothing, he created all things. This is the doctrine ex nihilo, that God created out of nothing everything that does exist. So we, who are created beings, use created things to create things. Christ, the uncreated one, made all things out of nothing. There are four pairs of created things listed, which create this a comprehensive list of dualities. Things in heaven and on earth. Things visible and invisible. Thrones and dominions. Rulers and authorities. This part of the song soars so quickly through these massive categories of created things, wanting us to see that Jesus is not only Lord and King, He is the maker of everything, from the microscopic atom to the blazing fury of the sun, all things we can see, and even the things we can't see, spiritual things is what's in view here with principalities and dominion. Jesus has made them all. All things bright and beautiful. And not only did he make all things, but they were made for him. Which leads to verse 17, where we find the purpose of all creation. As we reach the end of verse 16 and dovetail into the next, we learn that not only were all things made by Jesus, they were made for him. Great American theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote a lot on this. It's summarized in this one statement. For certain, certainly, it was the goodness of the Creator that moved him to create. And how can we conceive of another end proposed by goodness than that he might delight in seeing the creatures he made rejoice in that being he's given them? It appears also by this, because the end of the creation is that the creation might glorify Him. So what is the great end to which God creates all things for His glory? That is the witness of Scripture. This is what it means, that all things were made for Him. They exist for the glory of Christ, who also sustains all things, who holds all things together. And so... What we should do here is just gather our thoughts and our hearts around the truth of Christ. That He is the Lord, the God, the Maker, the Sustainer of all things that exist. And marvel that the Maker of Mary was also Mary's Son. So that's a lot of ground to cover in three verses, isn't it? Anybody have tired head right now? 
Okay, I, I just want to, one, I would encourage you to spend more time meditating on that text throughout the week. I think that would be incredibly beneficial. I just want to pause just to let us catch our breath and take this opportunity to remind you of some really good news. When we say that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, this includes your life. You are not an accident. God doesn't make accidents. You were fashioned, made, called into being, given the breath of life, set into motion by a sovereign maker. All of your days have been ordained. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows the hairs not on your head. He knows every word before it is said. And he holds all things together. Uniquely for the Christian, this task is so simple to tune our ear to the melody of this text and let it play over our lives with confident assurance. Jesus holds your life together. And he will not let go. Christ is the Lord of all creation, including your life. The second truth this hymn sings of is that Christ Jesus is the author of salvation, verses 18 to 20. As we reach verse 18, the the focus of the hymn shifts from showing Christ's work of creation to now highlighting the glorious work of salvation. The symmetry of this song is absolutely stunning. I wish we could look at it in Greek. It's even more so. It's as if Paul has walked through certain truths of who Jesus is, pointing to his work at creation, and now he retraces those same steps using many of those same words to show the one that is Lord of all creation is also the author of our salvation. First, let's see how these verses highlight, again, the identity of Christ regarding our salvation. Verse 18 says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The idea that Jesus is the head of the church means that he has authority over it. He attends every movement of his body, causing it to grow, Colossians 2, 9. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it expounds showing that God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. And he gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Christ is not a cold and distant deity, but has united himself to his body. He's that near to his people. He is forever latched himself to us as the head of the body, the church. We also learn that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Uh, We've heard this language already. We learned in verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. And so here he's called the firstborn of the new creation through the power of the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. And here what Paul's singing of is the glorious resurrection of Jesus 
And he's, he's talking to people who have been made new creations by the power of the gospel. Jesus is a first fruit of the resurrection to come. So the hope we have is even as these bodies grow old and die, those of us who are in Christ, we will never die. Even in the moment of death, we will never have been more alive. Why? Because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And finally, Paul tells us that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in flesh and blood. Verse 19, the phrase could not point to the incarnation more clearly. The incarnation that we gather our hearts around this time of, of the year, every year remembering the miracle of the incarnation, believing that Christ is fully God and fully man. So the identity of Christ, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. And all the fullness of God delighted to dwell in him. So let's move our attention now to the work of salvation. We looked earlier at the work of creation. Now in verse 20, it says that God reconciled to himself all things through Jesus. Paul's reference to all things being reconciled seems to indicate that there would be perfect peace everywhere. But how can there be perfect peace among those who reject Christ as Savior? Well, let me be clear. This does not mean that all will be saved and made right with Jesus. That is not the teaching of Scripture. Rather, reconciliation should be understood to include two aspects. Yes, restoration of relationship with God for all who have faith in Christ, but also perfect justice being experienced and executed against those who do not. To every person, every principality that has rebelled against him. And this perfect peace being sung of is experienced in heaven above and earth below in the physical and the spiritual realm. And then we see so clearly the only way that this reconciliation can be known. Through the blood of the cross. This is why Jesus had to die. This is why the God-man had to shed his blood in our place. It took the perfect God-man to live the perfect life in our place and the God-man to die the perfect death in our place in order for us to be reconciled to God. And God has done it. That's the good news of the gospel. It's been done. In every Reference in the New Testament to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, it's always God who does it all. It's never us working to be reconciled to Him. It's God doing all the work, having done all the work to reconcile us to Him. Reconciliation to God is a one sided process. That's really good news. How many times have you tried to earn God's approval by keeping the rules? Even right now, are you exhausted from that? He does it all. 
All we have to do is respond. And what God does for us in Christ is meet our greatest need. Don Carson explains well how God has met our greatest need in the sending of his son. He writes, If God had perceived our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he'd perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent a politician. If he perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent a savior. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled through the blood of the cross. Sins forgiven. Hearts made clean. Old becomes new. There's no other way. Our salvation, like all of creation, was ordained ultimately so that Christ might be glorified. As I thought about this song and the person and work of Christ and also the the shape of these weeks of Advent, these four weeks, I thought the best way to apply these truths to the hearts of those of us who are anxious or suffering or brokenhearted, the people around us right now, the sinner, that's everybody, might be to look at how this song magnifies the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love that we have seen demonstrated in Jesus. So Christian, this hymn offers you great hope. Because even in the face of every fear, we are shown there's no reason that our hearts should sink. The one who made us has also saved us, and he is our hope in life and in death. He is the resurrection and the life. It gives us hope. This hymn promises peace with God. Not a peace that comes and goes with the turning of a calendar page or with the ebb and the flow of a season, but a peace that remains and surpasses all understanding. That peace is only known through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died on our behalf. And because of Christ, we have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, this text shows us the love of God displayed in sending his one and only son. The fullness of God in flesh to rescue, redeem, ransom, restore, reconcile us to God. By this we know love, that God laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 And this passage is a source of great joy. The Bible calls it joy unspeakable and full of glory because the one who made you is the one who saved you. He is fully God and fully man. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Lord of all creation, and He is the author of your salvation. He is the image of the invisible God.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, the Savior. We thank you for the work of salvation that you've given to us as your people. I pray that we would keep our Bibles open and worship you for who you truly are. Not a Jesus of our own making, but the Christ of the Bible. I pray even for those this morning that may be suffering, brokenhearted, in the iron-clad hold of sin, I pray that each heart would experience the power and forgiveness that comes from Christ alone, that you would grant faith and repentance this morning, and that Jesus might be glorified. I ask in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.